What we need to be teaching our children most in this world is you be a person of character and value. You walk with your head high. If you're doing the best that you can do, then that's all that matters. And any, any outside criticism, it is so unimportant to who you're going to be as a person, unless you let it be. From the sunny palms of Los Angeles, this is Bully Buster, the podcast where Rhonda Orr speaks with guests battling the bully culture. Listen to real stories and find real solutions using Rhonda's Triangle of Triumph, going from victim to survivor to leader. Rhonda is an award-winning executive trainer, columnist, and speaker. She's also served as the founder of two nonprofits addressing child abuse and bullying. Now, here's Rhonda. Welcome to Bully Buster. I'm Rhonda Orr. It's my honor to introduce Fred S. Thomas. Fred served in the Navy as a staff briefer to the Commander-in-Chief for the U.S. Pacific Fleet, a member of a Special Emergency Response Group, Deployable Joint Task Force, and tons more. Fred received his bachelor's while in Hawaii and went on to a master's of organizational change. Those degrees and his expansive corporate career led him to serve in other arenas, such as volunteering as a coach for several girls' athletic teams annual fund school site council as the parent chair and the chair of the African-American Parent Council. Fred served with Hawaii's Big Brothers, Big Sisters, one-on-one mentoring organization, something very near and dear to my heart since I have a partnership with a large Arizona affiliate. He's always most passionate about bullying and racial and cultural topics, especially because he's surrounded by women, his wife and three amazing daughters. I can't wait for you to hear his stories. Fred Thomas, welcome to Bully Buster. Thank you so much for having me, Rhonda. This is really an honor, and I'm really excited. <laughs> I am too. I've heard you speak before, so I'm excited to jump right in. What are the oppression and the marginalizations and the inequalities of today in racism? I think we're in a in a different space. When I grew up as a small child, it was post-civil rights movement. It was early 70s, late 60s. African-Americans in particular were beginning to develop an identity. They were becoming blue class. They were, they were enjoying the beginning trappings of home ownership, affirmative action, regardless of how controversial uh, that uh, program was, made the ability for African-Americans to start striving for the American dream, so to speak. We used to call it Afrocentric back then. Okay. Back then, we wanted to be known as Black men and women, Black Americans, right? It's changed over the years, right? Then we went, we went from being Negro to African American to Black to back to African American. And during that time, what we saw in terms of racism was we knew that there was an entrenched system. And, and I have to be careful. When we say systems of racism... Oh, I'm glad you started that because I was going to ask you, what is the difference between racism and systemic racism? This is the question that I get asked the most because to the lay person, when they hear the term systemic racism, it's okay, and we'll use the the most popular one these days, which is systemic racism in policing. So many people attribute that to the accusation that somehow the men and women in law enforcement are racist. 
Right. And the courts are racist and the judges are racist as people. They think we're attacking the merits of the individual person. Right. We know that that's not true. Today's law enforcement really is a reflection of, of our society. It's full of men, women, African-American, Latinos, Asians. But where that comes from is we're talking about a system in which the manner with which the communities are being policed is based on a system that was based on the oppression of African-Americans. Okay. And so what that means is when we go all the way back to when Lincoln was brave enough to forge ahead with the Emancipation Proclamation, when they freed the slaves and that became effective in the South, they instantly lost their labor force. It was an instant takeaway from the hundreds of millions of dollars that they were earning on free slave labor. And prior to that, the police force didn't serve like the police force serves today. Back in those days, they had constables, they had a sheriff, and really, they just responded to calls. If you called them, they would be there. If you didn't call them, you just saw them. It's like, hey, Joe. They really only responded when called and asked. But during the slave trade, what we had in the South was we had slave patrols. And what those were was those were men that were hired by by plantation owners to literally go find their runaway slaves. Now, how do you find a runaway slave? Because a runaway slave in speech, in mannerisms, in dress look an awful lot like a free person. Right. So the only way to identify them was through an interrogation process. So they would stop people of color and they would say, who are you? Where is your papers? If you were a slave, you had to have written permission to be off the plantations. If you were a free person, you actually had to carry documentation proving that you were free. And if you didn't have those things, they would collect you and they would throw you in jail. And that's how most free people got returned to slavery was either they didn't have the documents on them at the time that they were stopped by these slave patrols or the slave patrols said the papers were invalid or phony. And it was almost impossible to disprove they weren't, especially if, if they were papers from another state. So widespread fraud, in essence, by the plantation owners. Again, we're talking a system. If you are a plantation owner back in those days and you have a slave patrol out there returning your slaves, your goal is to make sure that your slaves get returned, and your other goal is to make sure that they never do it again. So these men were not the most courteous people on the planet. They were very violent. They were very evil. They were very evil in intent. They, they used torture. They used whatever they could to elicit the response that they wanted to get out of you. Even torture. Up to and including torture. So when the Emancipation Proclamation took and instantly plantation owners had no more free labor. Well, then came the series of ordinances that made certain crimes payable by fine. And one of them, one of the major ones was loitering. So you had to have a job. You had to be gainfully employed by an employer or you could be cited for loitering. Well, imagine hundreds of thousands of, of African-Americans being freed overnight and then someone coming up to them going, do you have a job the next day? Of course, the answer is uh, no, I, I'm, I've just been free. So now they're in violation. And so being in violation, they got hit with a monetary fine. Obviously, they can't pay the monetary fine. So then the punishment was indentured servitude. Now you're going back to the same plantation that you just got liberated from, and you're going to work there for free to work off your debt. And there wasn't a system to cite the plantation owners, or was that just not even happening at all? No, it wasn't happening. And so what happened was, well, now we have the local constable and his deputy. And remember, remember the old Westerns when whenever they needed to go catch a criminal, they had to go get a posse, right? right. They didn't even have a police force large enough to actually do any real protecting of the community, right? Well, now all of a sudden, we've got this 
market for returning, loitering African-Americans, loitering freed slaves back to indentured servitude. Well, who's already dealt with runaway slaves and how to interrogate and how to find them and where they live, where they're located? Well, that would be the slave posse. So now the police forces increase their deputies by hiring the slave posse. So systemic racism in policing is the tactic of stopping a citizen, regardless of color, and interrogating them until you find something you can get them on. Okay. And that's what we mean when we say systemically racist. It, it's born in a system that was literally designed specifically for that purpose. And everybody, I don't care what color you are, when you get stopped by the police, you know the drill. They're going to keep asking questions. And if you give them an answer that they don't particularly like, the more questions come out. Next thing you know, they want to search your car. Next thing you know, you, you get put through the paces. What happens in this country, though, oftentimes when you're not African-American, and, and, and because, quite frankly, most of my friends that I know that are not Black, they really don't harbor what I would call divisive racist views. They're looking at you going, no, not everything is racism. But we're not saying that the person is racism. We're saying that system of stopping and interrogating. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I know that when you were speaking about systemic racism, a lot of us who are not Black, we were being identified as part of the problem of systemic racism. And I thought, well, I am not a racist. Right. And this is where the double-edged sword comes in. And I think this applies to every, every issue that we're currently facing in our country. There's the complicit culpability where you are actually doing things to either further continue to oppress somebody or to continue the, the stereotypes. And then there's the complacent one. And this is true even in my family. I go to my Thanksgiving dinner back when we got to have Thanksgiving dinners, and it's yeah. generations of African-Americans in the, in the room. And the older generation of African-Americans are pretty anti-white. Let's just say that. And they will make their views known. And for the longest time as a young man, I would hear them. Now I have a wife that is not African-American and my children are mixed. And they would be talking about these white people are this and da, 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 da. And I would never tell them that that was inappropriate to be spoken around me, you know, I, because you feel this insecurity to speak up. It's not even backlash. And we all have it. It's kind of like if someone has a religious affiliation and all of a sudden someone throws that question at them at work, some people won't answer it because in that moment, they kind of lose their guts, so to speak. Right. Or someone might be devoutly Christian and they hear someone really spewing against the church and it, and it hurts them to their core, but they're afraid to actually speak back and say, hey, you know what? And, and it doesn't even have to be a declaration of I'm Christian or I don't believe in racism or discrimination. It can simply be, hey, when I'm around, I don't want to hear those kinds of conversations. Correct. And so we're getting to the point now where it's not enough for all of us. And again, race is, is always going to be an issue to some extent in the world because we all do come from different places. And one thing about the human nature is we tend to gravitate to people that are similar to us. And we tend to be suspicious of people that are dissimilar to us. Yes, in psychology, it's the mirror effect. You're not mirroring me. And don't you think that the mirror effect has become worse and not better? No. I think what's become worse, because I think that's inherent in all of us, and I think it will always be around, what's become worse is the indifference. It's the, well, I'm not a racist, and they're bad, and I see that they're bad, but I'm not going to say or do anything about that person. Isn't it interesting that all men are created equal, which is a, a statement that has no ambiguity. 
there's no room to interpret that any other way. Yet, hundreds of years later, we're still having to have a court say, yes, all men are created equal. Yes, even that group. Yes, even that group. Yes, even that group. Well, and I was thinking that the corporate environment, because I, I was a, a senior corporate executive for 30 years and an executive trainer, and I thought racism was getting better. Can you imagine that? Maybe 25 years ago. And now I feel like it's, it's actually worse than it was then. I don't really think that. Racism as it exists is always going to be a part of the fabric of who we are. It just is. It, it can't help itself. How it manifests itself and what happens with that is totally different, right? I can say, oh, I don't really like that group of people as a general blanket statement. But now am I actively going out there speaking out against them or not promoting them or not hiring them? I don't think it's necessarily gotten worse, Rhonda, but I think what's happening that we all need to come to terms with is that inside of the mechanism with which we see racism, sexism, bullying, we see all these things. There is a, there is a, as if you're part of a community, which this country is a community, there is a personal responsibility to that community to, to do your best, to, to do what you can do to change it. Simply acknowledging that something is bad is not doing your best to help change it. It's just acknowledging it's bad. I agree with that because you have to do something individually, then you have to do something with your community. I mean, you have to go across the board is my feeling. There are some terms that have come up in the last 10 to 20 years, maybe 15 years, 15, 20 years, that really, I think, have helped blind us to the fact that these, that the, these differences will always be there and that some people are, are going to use those differences as an excuse to hate and discriminate. I've had this conversation with teachers. I've actually gone to teacher trainings at elementary schools on their training days, and I've actually had trainings with them. When you say things like, I don't see color, you think what you're saying is, I am so liberal and I'm so liberated and I accept everyone that it doesn't matter if you're black, white, red, brown, blue, green. In actuality, what you're doing is you are discounting a person's culture. You got your master's in organizational change. And I, I see all the councils that you have been on and Big Brothers, Big Sisters. In fact, I have a partnership in Arizona with Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And I love their system of one-on-one -on -one mentoring. Now, when you were involved in that organization, didn't you see that as the most positive way of trying to help someone have self-worth? Well, I'll give you a funny story. So I'm in Big Brothers and Big Sisters in Hawaii. And this happens to me a lot because ever since I left Oakland, I've always tried to choose the communities that I felt would be safe, that I felt that would give me great economic opportunities, that I felt that if and when I had children, they, it, there'd be environments to thrive in. And unfortunately in this country, more often than not, uh, to check all those boxes off means I'm in a middle to high-end white neighborhood. That's, that's essentially what it means if, if I wanna check all those boxes re realistically. And so what happens when I go there is I then become the official spokesperson for black folks. So I'm in Hawaii and I get a call from one of the heads of Big Brothers and Big Sisters in Hawaii and they're like, Fred, we really want you to become a big brother. And, I, and I'm so honored. I'm like, man, they know me. They know my personality. They think I'd be great. Well, it was to pair me with the one black kid that they had. Oh. And so, yes, right? So, so when I get there, the whole program has one black young man. And 
they needed Fred because they wanted to pair him with a... That is sad. It is sad, right? It's positive in a way that he gets to see because his father was absent in this, in this family's life. So we, and we bonded extremely. I mean, we have a really close connection even to this day, but it's sad that I was so duped in the, we're not, we're not stuck on race anymore that I was actually shocked when, when I got there and they were like, okay, yeah, that that's your, that's your guy. But what, that enabled me to do was to have a one-on-one conversation with Ron about what tools he needs to navigate the world. That person that called me wasn't being racist. He wasn't like, oh gosh, I got a black kid. I got to find a black guy. Oh, I know Fred. Let me call Fred. He was literally thinking, because we had this conversation over dinner, this black kid is looking at a bunch of faces that don't look like him, don't talk like him, don't act like him. So he's thinking about skills and culture. And he's thinking, I want somebody that this young man can connect with, right? Right. Now, does that mean that he could have only connected with me? No, because there's only but basically 50 things to be interested in in this world to begin with. So all, almost <laughs> all of us are, have the same interests, right? You know, when we really break it down, yeah, you know, there's some nuances, but we're pretty much all into about the same things. Book buff or your movie buff or whatever, right? Yes, um, absolutely. So, I agree with that. So you can find people of a different race that, that connects. But in his effort to make sure that that this young man got the best possible experience from his mentorship, he wanted to find at the time I was working for the Bank of Hawaii, I was in a, a very exclusive leadership program. I was very young. I was fresh out of the military. And there were so many things that my uh, little brother got to see as a positive. And I and was doing it, was doing it in a time I actually had a, one on my very first ship, I actually had a chief. Uh, tell me that I was never going to get anywhere in the Navy married to that white girl. Like, like literally, he just flat out told me that. Wow. Like, it was like unapologetically, like, here you go, dude. Good luck processing that. <laughs> you know, that's horrible. And I think about your childhood. In your childhood, you lived in Germany. You lived in Nigeria. So your experiences with racism were completely different and kind of well-rounded. Well, here's the hilarious part. My stepfather when we lived in the bay area was a civil engineer and his company won a contract to do infrastructure in africa so my me my brother my sister and my mother we all went to africa nigeria and we were there for about a year or so which by the way I found out very quickly that what ma- what matters most in Nigeria is wealth. And it's not like when I got to Africa, the, the kids were like, welcome home, son. We miss you. They were like, <laughs> you got money. Give it to me. You know what? But I think a lot of Americans think that. What do you say? When you go to a third world country for the first time, you realize that poverty is the only thing that matters. I had a blast, but it was also very scary. You know, constantly our houses were constantly getting robbed. Our compound was constantly getting broken into. You can bribe the police. Like So that was my first time kind of seeing a very exposed, corrupt political system, right? Right. Well, then my mother sent me and my brother to Germany to live with my aunt, who my aunt and uncle at the time were in the army. But my aunt, being the, the wonderful person she is, she purposely lived in a small town, a small German town off the base. She wanted to live around the community. I like that because that shows the real community, right? The real community. And almost none of them spoke English. Oh. Like like I took a bus into the base to go to school, but none of the neighbors, especially none of the, the parents and grandparents, none of them spoke English at all. And I remember playing soccer, playing football in the park. Maybe I was there two or three months and kids knew my name, but we could barely communicate. And all of a sudden they are pushing me to these bushes. This is in 1982. And they're pushing me into these bushes and I can tell they're not laughing. And I can tell this is not something funny. And as they get me down these bushes that were kind of covering the hill in the park, 
there were a, a little small convoy of about five cars that drove by. And I didn't know it at the time. They had swastikas on them. Oh, no. And this little community of German kids were like, get down, you know, get down. And I and I went home and, and told my aunt. That's how I first learned about Nazis and, and like was in that experience. So fast forwarding to where we are now, we have suppressed because we don't want to remember. Nobody wants to remember the ugly. Our, our brains aren't even designed to remember the ugly. We remember way more good things than we remember the bad things, right? Because if we, if all we remember were the bad things, half of us would jump off a bridge by now. You know, we, 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 our <laughs> brains force us to remember the good. Well, yes. You know, I just graduated from a neuro-linguistics practitioner program. Uh-huh. And so in that environment, it deals with your subconscious, your brain, science, and psychology. And your subconscious is really the most powerful tool that you have. But in your subconscious, right. if it's not chained, if you don't have positive experiences, then what's coming out? You know, that actually has to go through some kind of therapeutic process. Right. And so my friends today are all walks of life, all denominations, all non-denominations. I like to tell people all the time, I can get you an attorney or I can get you a mob boss. Like, well, like, what do you need? <laughs> like, I, I, I run the gamut in terms of friends. My friend group is a very interesting, eclectic group of people. And in my small town of Sierra Madre, which is obviously predominantly white, Actually, predominantly white is kind of a soft shoe term. It's a it's a it's a white town essentially. When we first moved here a dozen years or so ago, I would make a comment like you know a self deprecating joke. You know, oh, it's because I'm black. You know, ha ha ha. And they would be so Fred. We don't think like that here, Fred. That it's not like that anymore. And I I didn't want to give them the harsh realities that yes, we actually never really resolved any race issues. What we did was we resolved the legal side of the race issues. We made it illegal for your boss to call you a boy. And that is so powerful. We solved the legal system, but we did not solve the individual system. And so because we solved the legal issue, it gave everybody, not just white folks, black folks too, Asians, Mexicans, it gave everybody a comfortable blanket with which to say we are now protected. But we never really sat down and ever truly discussed, think about it, the only time we ever discussed race, race and cultural differences with any kind of real sincerity is when something horribly tragic happens. What about the protest in the summer? Is there any kind of progress coming because of that? So the short answer is no. Well, and I'll tell you, there were some things that were very encouraging. For the first time in my life, I saw a white America, right, a white America in general, being as pissed off about it as as I was, which was actually nice to see. Yes, I felt myself getting that way because I felt like, oh my gosh, is this still an issue? Are we are, we haven't progressed at all? And if we're talking about changes to how our government and our leaders and our laws and our law enforcement how they behave, when we're talking about that level of change, it's never going to happen through the voices of the people that are being negatively impacted. And I have a great little antidote for that. When I was running uh, one of the school committees at my daughter's school, at the time, there was this big lack of services for special needs kids. If your kid got tested in the spectrum and you were supposed to get 25 hours of reading intervention, but they couldn't afford to give your kid 25 hours because they had so many kids and you know not that much money. So your kid was only getting 10 to 15 hours. Well, all those parents were always up in arms and they were they were hiring attorneys and they were yelling and going to the board and they were screaming, you know, we've got to do better with this. And they did that for years to almost little to no change overall. 
the loudest people, obviously, they got the services that they wanted, but the system as a, as a whole didn't really feel compelled to fix it. But it wasn't until parents who were blessed to not have children that had those needs, it wasn't until those parents started going and saying, no, this is wrong. These kids need, these. that kid needs the reading intervention more than my kid does. Well, most of the bullying happens with special needs kids. I mean, the number one reason for bullying is weight. And the number two yes. reason is special needs kids. Having three daughters, having them a mixed race, there are a couple of stories in my town that I absolutely love. And, and the town has been, it's my home now. I mean, uh, Sierra Madre has been really great to me and my family. I remember one time I came home from work back when I had that massively horrible commute. And my middle daughter, who was all the bubble of energy and personality, was literally in tears and crying. And her her best friend at the time was a young blonde haired girl and they were just like second grade best friends should be. They were best friends at recess, hated each other at lunch, best friends again by the end of the day, right? Like that's right. exactly what the dynamic you would expect to see. Well, apparently the girl had told my daughter the reason that they had had a fight. And then when they made up, the, the girl said, well, the reason we don't get along is because you're black and I'm white and black people and white people don't get along. And it literally made my daughter cry. And I get home, and of course, my wife is highly emotional, my daughter is highly emotional, and they, they tell me what happened. And I, and I look at them, and I said, okay, honey, first of all, dry your eyes. And this is what I want you to do. The next time someone comes to you and says, the reason why we don't get along is because you're black and I'm white, and black people and white people don't get along, what you should say is, no, the reason why we don't get along is because I'm intelligent and you're an idiot. And <laughs> idiots and intelligent people don't get along. My message to her was a simple one. We forgot that old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. The reason bullying is so powerful is because we eat that stuff like it's a truth, like it has to be our truth. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's effective and powerful. It's like, it's like the whole controversy behind the N-word. Well, it's such a society of pushing yourself up and pushing the other person down. And it's so habitual that it's just rote in some of our children. Which, which is why the tool that we need most is a thick skin. The tool that we need most yes. in this world and what we need to be teaching our children most in this world is you be a person of character and value. You walk with your head high. If you're doing the best that you can do, then that's all that matters. And any, any outside criticism, it is so unimportant to who you're going to be as a person, unless you let it be. Now, I'm a big guy. I've been a big guy for 25, 30 years. You can't even fat shame Fred. I know I'm big. And, you know, <laughs> I've had dads make comments about, you know, man, you got to get in shape. And I'm like, dude, I don't need to do anything but stay black and pay taxes. Like, like I'm okay <laughs> with who I am now. Are there times where I go, you know what, Fred, you can lose 15 pounds. You don't have to be that heavy. Of course there are. Are there times when when we look at ourselves in, a, in an honest critique of ourselves and say, boy, I, I we can change this, you know, or, you know, I should change this. Or my wardrobe doesn't fit. Yeah, so my wardrobe doesn't fit. Or with daughters especially, and, and mixed daughters especially, my message to them growing up was always, just remember, even if the even if what they said actually got to you, they can never know it. You have to smile and nod. Your first line of defense is to stand tall and have eye contact. And in my younger classes of girls, let's say seven, eight, nine years old, when they would stand up 
on a stage and say, hi, my name is, and I'm a very important person and put their hands on their hips and say that and start walking and learned what a good posture is, that speaks volumes to the person that's bullying you. That can diminish right. someone. Yes. And it's hilarious that, that, that I've been blessed with all girls because, because one, I think I would have been really hard on a boy by today's standards. Cause I'd have been like, man, no, what are you crying <laughs> for? Like I would, I, it would not mm -hmm. have worked with me and sons. But what's, what was so interesting is, and now all of them are teenagers. And I, sometimes I wish I could call every girl that I knew in high school and just apologize. I had no clue what you ladies were going through and, and the things that, you know, and, and all the being hit in all these different areas about your self-esteem and your value and your worth. And I look at abuse and I look at bullying as the same because mostly it's someone who wants to overpower you. And as a right. survivor of sexual abuse as a child from the ages of three until nine, I, I had a tendency to think that everybody, for whatever reason, was better than I was until I learned. Right. Well, there's a devalue. Obviously, the, the hard part about bullying and sexual abuse and physical abuse and verbal abuse and emotional abuse is that it is it always chips away at your value and it always happens at a time when you're already feeling pretty bad about who you who you are or you're already unsure about who you are and then, like you needed that it's you know what it's like it's like running out of gas in the middle in, on, on a farm road having a person come and give you gas just to realize after he left that you got a flat tire with no spare yeah. right it's like that proverbial wow you're going to hit me when i need this the least I wish we lived in a different world. I really do. I wish things like date rape drugs weren't weren't a thing. Again, it boggles the mind that we have to tell men in this world that no means no. Like, wow, really? You you needed to be told that? I always get in these really horrible debates about pro-choice and pro-life and, and always horrible because whatever side they're on, they're always heated and very angry about it. And what I told my daughters is, you know, the first step to being a successful woman, in my opinion, is to own your universe. As a young lady, that's that's your mission in life. Own your room, own who you connect with, own who you choose to let in, own your universe. If you got to be lonely for a while because nobody fits in your orbit, then be lonely for a while. Don't force people into your orbit. For instance, I, I tell my daughters all the time, your body is your body and no one's going to protect it more than you're going to protect it. And even when you do everything you're supposed to do, there's still no guarantee that it's not going to be violated. So your job is to always operate with you as the primary concern. And especially when it comes to relationships with, with romantic relationships or, or emotional relationships, let those relationships naturally come in and fit into your orbit because it's too dangerous the other way around. We don't draw the line when it comes to the men. Well, we're not strong enough all the way around. Yes. That's yes. my feeling. Yes. I mean, people talk about empowerment, but to me, that's become kind of a vacuous statement. It has to have much more punch behind it. And what I like about what you're saying, Fred, is that, you know, they have to be taught these things at a very, very young age and to stand up for themselves and to stand up for what's right, no matter what. There's no such thing in my mind of your truth, my truth. There is the truth and your perception and my perception. Right. That might be the truth. Right. But there's no such thing as your truth and my right. truth. That does not make your world okay because your truth is 
different and therefore you're okay and you don't have to accept responsibility. Well, it might sound corny and cheesy, but I was giving a talk to uh, a group of girls that I was coaching. And, and when I coach, one of the reasons I enjoy coaching female athletics is it really isn't about the game. I could care less. And anybody that remembers the score of their high school game 30 years later really has a problem with what they've been doing with their life. Like, like it really shouldn't be something you remember. Remember yes. the moments, but you shouldn't remember it was a 5-4 loss right. and you went 0-3. That's just crazy. But there are so many lessons about fighting through adversity and leaving it all on the field, if you will. And I wrote on the board the word that I gave all the girls and I, it was I-N-P-O-W-E-R-M-E-N-T. And one of the girls quickly pointed out, you spelled empowerment wrong. And I said, no, I didn't. It's not empowerment. It's empowerment. It's your ability to take control of your life. I love that. It's not empowerment. And I, I told him, I'm like, I'm smarter than everybody in this room. And I'm telling that word has been misspelled from the day it came out. <laughs> it, it, it is empowerment because that that's the goal, right? If you're really, for all the, all the women and all the, all the young girls and ladies that you mentored and reached out to, it's amazing how much... No one believes in in the power of themselves. Everyone needs somebody else to, and, and yes, there are no self-made people. We 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 get by through the grace of God and with help and with mentors and support systems. You know, as I tell people, there's no such thing as a self-made person. Either somebody helped you along the way, or somebody didn't get in your way. And I really think that everybody has to have a mentor. Like I have my grandmother. I'm sure you had a mentor. I had a, a really great mentor who is the reason I even went to college because for me. I was, I kept my grades up in high school just enough to play sports. And I did really well in the military. And on my first ship, which was a small ship, I was kind of one of the guys. I was like, man, they were like, man, that guy knows his stuff, man. He's super sharp. The, the captain, everybody, there was a, the amount of respect that I had on that, on my first ship was, was immense. And then they threw out this college instructor. He joined us for three and a half months and he taught English literature. And he gave us the syllabus of the books that we could choose to read for this term, for the semester. First college course I ever took. And I'm sitting in a room of 20 some odd people who, in, in the military's eyes, I, I was way better than them. Like I performed better than them, had better evaluations. And I'm listening to them. And they're like, man, I read this book in the fifth grade. I have this book in my locker. Oh, I love this book. I read it twice. And I had never heard of any book on that. You name it. I had never even heard of the book. Last book I remember reading was Charlotte's Web, Right. And so, and so instantly I felt like an idiot. I felt like, oh my goodness, there's so much to this world that I don't know. And I'm going to get exposed for the fraud that I am. Well, anyway, long story short, I, when we got back to Hawaii, I took a class at Hawaii Pacific University. It was a business law class. My professor, as it turned out, was a very senior captain in the Navy. I did not know that because he didn't wear a uniform and he never talked about his military when he was in school. And so I get an A in that class. And I'm walking on base in my uniform and I'm at E5 at the time. And I'm just kind of minding my own business and walking in. All of a sudden I hear Fred and I turn around and there's my English professor in his captain's uniform, his breastplate of medals, egg everywhere. And I'm, and I'm already intimidated. So I'm saluting. I'm like, sir, I didn't know you were in the military. And so <laughs> he asked me what classes I had signed up for for the next semester. And I told him I hadn't. I said, I was just taking that one class because I had the time. And Ron told me that I was easily the smartest person he had ever met. He loved reading my papers. He said my writing grammar and structure stunk, but my concepts and my understanding was through the roof. And he said, so here's the deal. I'm going to check the registrations for next semester. And if you're not on it, I'm going to your ship to talk to your captain. 
<laughs> completely freaked me out. And he stayed my mentor until he passed about uh, a dozen years ago or so. I wouldn't make a, a professional move without calling him. And he had three sons and a daughter. So it's not like he was hard for children. He just saw something in me <laughs> that no one else did. And yes, so you need that mentorship. Even in the face of that, isn't it amazing how, how still somehow we've, we've driven out of people that the most power that, that, that they need to possess is already with them. They just need to unlock it and they need to trust it. And they need to, they need to not be afraid of the failure or the ridicule. Just stand as a, as a unique individual on this planet and say, you know what, this is me. And it might not be perfect and I might not get everything right. And I might not be your vision of what I'm supposed to be, but damn it, this is me. And I'm okay with that. Did he help you get through uh, racism? Did he help you with that? What was the racial tensions when you were in the service? On my first ship, which I love dearly. And, and again, this is why I say that racism is a part of the fabric of the human condition. I wish it weren't, but you know, we've got, our, we've got genocides beyond the Holocaust throughout history. You know, we, as human species, we can't seem to get out of hating people because of race and regions and the whole nine yards. It's just something that about the way our brains work mechanically. And I remember being on my ship and, you know, like I said, I, you know, had a pretty nice reputation on the ship. In the aft head, which is the bathroom, the bathroom at the back of the ship, somebody in one of the stalls had etched on, on the on the stain on the stainless steel, they had etched a KKK hit list. And there were oh six gosh. names on it. And my name was number three. The captain at the time has a full-on meeting and he's he's legitimately upset. And he said, I'm gonna find out who you are. And when I find out who you are, you're out of my military. I'm gonna throw you out on your butt. And it has got everybody in attention. And he then turned to the six of us who and he had us kind of on display, you know, these young men are men of distinction and da 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 da. And he said, and he apologized and he said, he's going to find out. And he said, do you want to address the ship's company? And most of the people on that list were way senior than me. And they, they were all like, yeah, I don't have anything to say. And I, of course I'm Fred. So I said, well, sir, I have something to say. And, and the captain was like, was like, go ahead, son. And I said, sir, I got to tell you, I got to tell you, this list really bothered me. It really bothered me to my core. And I said, I've been on this ship now for two years and four months. And since the day I've got here, I've been the best at everything that I've done. How in the hell am I number three? Why am I not number one on this list? <laughs> I'm like, what do I have to do? And the whole ship's company started, but I was dead serious. I'm like, I'm the third hated Negro. Like, what do I have to do to be the number one? Because I don't, I'm not second place in anything. Well, that must have really broke the silence. Oh, everyone started laughing and the captain started laughing. And and, and later when I was telling Ron, uh, uh, my mentor, I got some private time with the captain and I said, sir, I appreciate the sentiment, but I don't think you need to overreact because what I do know is you're not going to, none of us are going to change what's in someone's heart. We just aren't. We just aren't. As much as I would love to just wipe out racism with a magic pen. I think bullies can't stand somebody who is happy like that. You know what? I actually think that's coming for everybody. All of us. <laughs> Let one of your friends get some success that you didn't have. Even when you congratulate them in the back of your brain, you're like, really? You got that? We're, we're all we're all a little bit like hating a little bit. We're like, Ugh, how'd she get that? <laughs> but I don't like the verbiage of saying things. Even in Jess, one of one of our campaigns was JK does not make it okay. Right. Because because I don't like it when people say, Oh, I hate you. You know, and yes, that's supposed to be funny, but there are some girls, little girls that don't get it. 
and they take that too far. There's always truth in everything that is uttered. So there's no backing away from it. Even if you don't mean it in the most destructive terms, there's an element of it that does exist in you because that's your brain's way of saying, you know, you don't get to be fake your whole life. I'm going to make you leak out a little bit of who you are. I think Maya Angelou said it before. If someone is, is telling you who they are, take them at their word. Don't try to candy coat it. If someone's like, I hate you, they actually have some issues with you that you're unaware of. Even if they said it laughingly or jokingly, there's obviously something there. But here's the thing, though, Rhonda. I think if we want to make this country, this world, our neighborhoods, if we want to make it a better place, we keep looking all around us for what it is that's going to make this better. When the reality of it is, this is all about choice and it's all about individual choice. And we have to make it better and we only have to worry about us. That's right. I'm worried about being the best father that I can be. I'm worried about being the best coach that I can be. I'm worried about being the best version of, of a man that I can be. I'm not a perfect man by any stretch. Because somebody's going yes. to hate us inevitably, no matter what. No matter what. But, but it's the external lens. If you want, and you asked this question earlier, if you want to know why I don't think race relations has gotten better, it's because everyone is looking at race relations with an external lens. Oh, that's so perfect. And I was just going to ask you, what is something that people can do to help themselves be more outward? I like to say, oh, I'm not a racist, but then there's somehow guilt in there that, am I? Is there something in me? Well, one, I think we ought to stop saying that phrase. Okay. Okay. I think we ought to stop declaring that we're not racist. Ah. I think what should be the more appropriate sentiment should be something like, I pray that I don't display any of the horrible negative tenements of racism. I love that. That should be more of the sentiment. Instead of saying, oh man, that ain't me. Right. Which, which is how this all got pushed under the rug, which is why every 30, 40 years we have another uprising and uproar. Because we keep making these declarations instead of acknowledging the fact that discrimination and stereotyping and so and and kids these days are are the words are tripping them up. And I have to tell my daughters all the time because they'll say, they'll say, that's racism. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, no, that's racist. And you have to know the difference. Racism is an overt act to do something to damage or cause harm because of someone's race. Racist is just an idiot stereotype that you can't seem to keep your mouth shut about and you're spewing it to the world. And empowering them by doing that. And I, while I don't think we are ever going to be in a position where we can separate racist, we can create a society that 100% shuns and punishes racism. Absolutely. And that, and that should be our goal. Yeah. You can think what you want to think, but when you start acting on that thought, when you start mm -hmm. taking away the freedoms and the liberties and the comfort level, you know, people keep acting like, you know, I think some people that are on the other side literally think just because they spouted off all this racial rhetoric that it's fine because they're not doing anything to make my life miserable. Of course you are. You're creating an uncomfortable condition. You want to talk about being uncomfortable, be a kid of Jewish descent, the only kid of Jewish descent of a proud Jewish family in a room full of white people talking about the Holocaust. You're going to feel this tiny. Feel, be the one black kid in the room when they start talking about the N-word and the use of it. Like there are conditions that we create that are not helping. And But what we are doing though is we're saying, well, that's not me, that's them. And while you, like Rhonda, you may not actually be racist, but you're not perfect. So in our hearts, we all have a reckoning to just show some humility and be like, yes. man, I hope I don't do that. I hope that, and be introspective. 
They'll be like, you know what? I hope I have the courage for people that are religious. I, I always tell them, maybe instead of praying that there is no racism, maybe you pray to ask for the strength to speak up when you hear someone in your own circle talking in, in racist or negative or bullying ways. And I have done that. And you know what? That makes you feel so good because you are doing something actively empowerment to make sure other people know right yes. and that's a part of uh, i have something called the triangle of triumph and it means going from victim to survivor to leader and as a victim i say the first thing you have to do you need to say i choose not to stay a victim i don't think people actually choose to become a victim but you can choose not to stay a victim and in that choice you are immediately given power. You've given power to your whole self. And then you can define yourself before other people do. And then you can get away from yourself and you can provide service to other people. Isn't that the biggest challenge? Because because in my wonderfully fun and Indiana Jones-like uh, uh, life that I've led so far, there have been some really dark, really painful, really abusive chapters in my life. And it is so hard. I always put this out, even in the in the groups that I'm dealing with now, always recognizing that that goal of, of, of letting that pain and that hurt and that fear go is such a monumental task. It is so hard to actually let it go. And it's a curse. It, it really is because it just sits and it eats. You can compartmentalize it. You can fill your mind with other stuff. You can surround yourself with all the good in the world and 30 years later, it's still sitting with you. It's still in there, gnawing at you, poking at you. You might not have nightmares anymore, but it does It does shape. And you don't trust as much as you should. And you you don't love as much as yes. you're capable of. And you, you never get back to the fullness of who you could have been when those kinds of horrors and tragedies are given to you. But what you can get to, which I'm not a spring chicken anymore, and I'm just now getting to that phase of that phase of actually looking at it and going, you know what? Even with that sitting on my back, look at where I am. Look at look at look at where I am and what I'm doing today. And I had every reason. So for for victims of abuse, of of sexual abuse, of of racism, of of fat shaming, of bullying, man, every year that you survive, you should be looking back at that year and going, I'm a badass. Look at look at what I did. Look at that. They did not uh -huh. actually win. They broke me because let's not pretend that that stuff doesn't break us. It breaks us. It, it changes who we are. It, it breaks does break us. us. But look at, but if you can get through that and, and, and still be walking on the other side, what was that old saying? It doesn't matter if you run, walk, crawl, or, or get pulled, always move forward. Like it, it doesn't actually matter. Just keep moving. Just keep moving. And as long as you are moving, you are also defining yourself yes. and you're doing it in a, a much more layered and complex way that makes you a better person with better values that really stick. And the next time you are a victim, sometimes it's not as shattering. Maybe it feels like it, but you can still start over. We always internalize it. We're like, well, what did I do? Why, is it, why does this stuff keep happening to me? I'm a good person. I treat everybody right. Why are these things following on me? Those are legitimate questions. Those are just questions designed to stop the progress. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. Those are questions that, that, that put you stuck in the mud. And I like to think of life as driving down the freeway at 80 miles an hour 
and changing your oil at the exact same time. Like, no, we're not pulling over to change our oil. We got we to gotta figure out how to get under this car at 80 miles an hour, get that oil changed so we can keep going. But we're not pulling over for nothing. And our girls, you know, they need to define themselves. I'm not leaving out men, but girls need to define themselves. We, we have these five values, civility, courage, confidence, creativity, and communication. Those five values, that's, that's what we try to help people say, okay, I, I was a victim. Now I'm choosing not to be a victim. And here's how I'm specifically going to define myself. It's interesting, Rhonda, you brought up guys and girls. When we, when we start talking about gender in, in the modern era in this country, it actually reminds me a lot about black-white race relations, where it was like in the late 80s, 90s, even now, that white shame, quote unquote, where it's kind of like, Yes, when you say Black Lives Matter, invariably some well-meaning white person will be like, all lives matter. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then the Black Lives Matter people will say, yes, all lives matter. But right now we're talking about Black people, Black lives, right? Well, that is a pendulum swing that, and I I never like pendulums because they always go too far the other direction. And we're going to meet in the middle. Fred, I, I want to ask, what is the one biggest takeaway you would like to give our listeners today? I think the one biggest takeaway is that we have to, we really, really, really have to remember that change is such a personal journey. And what we need in this world is we need more individuals to just work on themselves and stop trying to work on the whole. You know, just do your part. If everybody starts to do their part, we'll do this better. Oh, that's fantastic. Fred, I can't thank you enough for being on Bully Buster today. Thank you. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. I love the realness and rawness of Fred S. Thomas, our wonderful guest on Bully Buster today. I have about a hundred takeaways today. However, three that will make a major impact on our culture today and for the betterment of our society. Number one, there's a difference between racism and systemic racism through the history of policing. Systemic racism started when slaves had instant freedom through Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation after the Civil War. Plantation owners lost indentured slaves and a series of wrongful, evil, and torturous policies were used to return black men to the plantations. Systemic racism grew out of that evil and still exists within some groups. Most people are not racist, but a culture of violence still hangs on because of that history. Number two, isn't it interesting that all men are created equal, which is a statement that has no ambiguity. There was no room to interpret that any other way. Hundreds of years later, we're still having to have a court to define that. Yes, all men are created equal. Yes, even that group. Yes, even that group. Yes, yes, yes. Number three, we tend to gravitate to people that are similar to us, and we tend to be suspicious of people that are dissimilar to us. Fred says the mirroring effect hasn't become worse. He says it's inherent in all of us. It's the indifference that's become worse. We have to all do our personal best. Just acknowledging there's racism and it's bad is not enough. You have to do your personal best to change it. Do something individually, then with your community, and then with the world. Thanks again, Fred, 
for being a powerful and fun guest on Bully Buster today. And thank you for listening. You may find more episodes at bullybuster.us. Plus, find our new weekly podcast at 10minutestocivility.com. You'll laugh, learn, and love it. I'm Rhonda Orr. Thanks for listening to Bully Buster. And remember, bullying ends when civility begins. Go to Rhonda's website, bullybuster.us, to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. That's also where you'll find information about having Rhonda speak at your event or school. It's all at bullybuster.us.